This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation, and welcome to today's Bright Focus Chat, How Your Diet Impacts Your Eyes. If this is your first time in a Bright Focus Chat, thank you. Let me briefly tell you about Bright Focus and what we'll do today. Bright Focus is funding about 200 researchers around the world. They are uh, scientists that are trying to find better treatments and ultimately cures for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. And at Bright Focus, we try to share the latest news, latest updates from these scientists with families that are impacted by these diseases. We have a number of free publications and materials at our website, brightfocus.org. Let me tell you about today's guest. We're really fortunate to have Dr. Sheldon Rowan with us. Dr. Rowan holds a PhD in genetics from Harvard University, and he remains in Boston, where he works in the Department of Ophthalmology at the Tufts University School of Medicine. We've been really fortunate to help support some of Dr. Rowan's work through Bright Focus's Macular Degeneration Research Program. And Dr. Rowan has led groundbreaking scientific projects on the inter intersection of diet and macular degeneration. And I think today's a really interesting topic because for most of us, when we think of diet and what that means for our health, we think about our weight, we think about our cardi cardiovascular um, health, we might think about our appearance and all the, that comes with, comes with what, what we weigh. But a lot of us don't know that your diet actually impacts your vision health, particularly macular degeneration. And that's why we're so fortunate to have Dr. Rowan with us today to tell us a little bit more about how diet impacts your eyes. So Dr. Rowan, um, I know you were with us about two years ago, and so welcome back to the Bright Focus Chat. Thank you. This is this is really fun, and I'm happy to update on anything new that's happened and also just kind of like reiterate what we already knew at the time. I, I think it's a really exciting area in macular degeneration research right now. Well, great. Why don't you just tell us a little bit, um, how did you end up becoming a scientist? Um, so, I mean, I became a scientist pretty much right out of high school. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I began um, doing very basic molecular studies. Um, I thought I was going to do cancer research and cure cancer. Um, but when I started my PhD, I actually really fell in love with vision research. So I've been working in the eye for about 25 years now. Um, so my PhD work was looking at very basic questions about how the retina forms um, during development. And then I worked on the lens for a while, um, which I was interested in questions about how the lens forms, but also how diseases like cataract form. Um, and then when I became an independent scientist, I decided I was more interested in working in a human disease-relevant area. So um, I joined Tufts University, I think, about 2012, and I've been um, studying age-related macular degeneration. Well, that's great. And you know, we'll, get, you know, we'll get into a lot of details over the next half hour or so, but just kind of start us off, Dr. Rowan, big picture. How does your diet impact your eyes? So our, our diet is um, a bigger determinant in our eyes than I think anyone would have guessed um, at the get-go. Um, and part of that is just because our diet is such a fundamental um, source of our physiological health. So our well-being, um, our metabolism is eventually controlled by our diet. Um, so we, we think about with diet, we think about micronutrients and macronutrients. So the micronutrients are things like vitamins. Um, we've known for a long time that the vitamins that we get from our diet can have a big impact in our risk for macular degeneration. That was kind of the basis for why the National Eye Institute started the ARID studies, which 
have eventually led to kind of our current treatments for macular degeneration. Um, but we've also understood over the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years that those macronutrients as well, the amount of proteins, the amount of carbohydrates and fats in our diet, can also have a significant um, impact on your risk for macular degeneration. And, and then all of that kind of converges within um, what our diet does to our gut microbiome, which is you know, this kind of new frontier in understanding relationships between our environment, our diet, and our well-being. Well, great. And we will get into all those points in, in, in detail over the coming minutes, but I appreciate you kind of setting setting the stage for that. And I understand that, that big picture, you look at a, a dietary pattern. I was wondering, you know, what what is a dietary pattern and what's a good one and what's a bad one? Sure. So the dietary pattern is really like what we actually eat in our diets. Um, it turns out that people aren't eating foods in isolation. They're eating kinds of combinations of foods together. Um, and the dietary pattern is that summary of all of the foods that you tend to eat on a, on a general basis. Um, so you could, the easiest way to think about this is think about someone that's a vegetarian. That's kind of a dietary pattern. They're going to be eating largely plant-based foods. Um, you can imagine there are people that are kind of tend to a more carnivorous diet where they're eating more meat-based foods. Um, and along with that, it's, um, it has a big impact on the other foods that we end up eating. Um, every time you eat one food, you eat less of something else. Um, so we, we could think about, um, you know, in America, there's kind of two big-scale dietary patterns. We think about the Western dietary pattern. Um, this is our typical diet that's not necessarily the healthiest diet for yeah. us. Um, you know, it's the one that we like to eat. It has, you know, the pizza and French fries and red meat and sugar-sweetened beverages. All of those foods tend to be eaten by the same people together. And then you have, like, the prudent diet, the one that scientists and nutritionists and dietitians have been telling us for a while to eat, the one that's more based on plant-based foods and fish and lean poultry um, and those kind of constitute the major dietary patterns in America. Well, great. And now, how um, how does how do dietary patterns impact uh, age-related macular degeneration? Like, do they do they impact the risk, or do they impact the progression, or or both of the disease? That that's a great question. I think the best of our understanding is that it's it impacts both of them. Mm -hmm. um, so our, our group kind of tried to look at this separately, looking both for early macular degeneration and late macular degeneration. And so, for example, what we found was that um, Americans that eat this Western dietary pattern have a really increased risk for advanced macular degeneration, mm -hmm. also earlier macular degeneration, um, whereas those that eat the prudent dietary pattern um, had a really dramatically decreased risk for advanced macular degeneration and for earlier macular degeneration. I should mention that it's hard, we don't know as much about the earlier parts of the disease because we'd really have to begin those studies in healthy individuals that don't have a disease mm. to begin with and follow them for potentially decades. So we know the most about the impact of dietary patterns on advanced macular degeneration. And that's where we've seen kind of the strongest associations. Well, great. Specifically, um, you know, on the, the the Mediterranean diet and the prudent diet, um, Western diet, are there 
can you cite a few specific examples of foods that are good and foods that are bad for vision health? Yeah, I would I would love to talk a little bit about the Mediterranean diet. Um, I kind of talked about the the standard um, patterns that you see in the American population, um, but I would say the Mediterranean diet is the one that we've studied the most and that I'm personally the most excited about. Mm-hmm. Um, so what makes a Mediterranean diet a little different than the kind of standard recommended diet is it also includes high intake of nuts, olive oil, so a lot of sources of monounsaturated fatty acids, whereas um, more traditionally prudent patterns tend to be polyunsaturated um, fatty acids. And then um, besides the olive oil and the nuts, um, high intakes of fish. So we're talking about maybe servings more than once a week of fish, um, lean meats, very rarely to have too much red meat in that dietary pattern, and just lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, um, especially green leafy vegetables, and um, legumes. Those are all kind of what I would say are the cornerstones of the Mediterranean diet pattern. Now, what's the other side of the coin, the foods that we should uh, do less of or perhaps none of? Um, The one that, so within, within the Western dietary pattern, I would say, The worst culprit is probably foods that contain trans fats, which luckily we've mostly phased out of our diets. Um, But similarly, foods that are high in unsaturated fats, um, fried foods, have definitely been independently linked to risk for macular degeneration. And our research has also looked at um, this aspect about carbohydrate quality. Um, So looking at foods that have, for example, a high glycemic index that are rapidly digested into simple sugars in our bloodstream, whether you're eating high amounts of added sugars, um, drinking them most of the time, or eating very like simple high-carbohydrate foods. Those are also associated with increased risk for macular degeneration. Um, and that's very helpful. We have a few questions um, kind of on those points. Uh, we had a, a, a caller wondering... Um, does this e- either either damage if you're not following a good diet or or improvement or or, or you know uh, benefits for good for good? Do these changes happen quickly or slowly in terms of the, the impact of your diet on vision? Does, do, do either progress or regression happen fast or slow? I guess I'd, I'd phrase it that way. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great question and something that um, we probably don't know exactly. We think that these are slow changes. Um, for the most part, age-related macular degeneration develops over the process of decades. Um, even when you have an intermediate stage of the disease, progression usually happens in the span of years. Um, so we have to think that the odds are that a dietary effect is going to kind of be an additive thing that's going to happen slowly over time. Um, that's not to say that changing of a diet can't potentially have a quicker effect um, on you know prevention of macular degeneration progression, but we think this is probably on a slow time scale and not a rapid time scale. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. And, and earlier you mentioned vegan and vegetarian. I was wondering if you can comment. Um, a caller was wondering, vegan and in vegetarian diets, do these help or hurt vision health? I think um, they're probably going to be on the helpful side. Um, No one specifically looked at exclusive vegans or exclusive vegetarians um, 
and seeing whether they have um, greater protection against macular degeneration? That's an interesting question. Um, my guess is they would because for the most part, they're going to be consuming the foods that we already know mm-hmm. are associated with protection. So high amounts of fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, you have to get your protein from somewhere, especially if you're on a vegan diet. So you're going to get your protein from nuts and legumes. Again, foods that we know already are beneficial. Um, it's not to say that all vegetarian diets are that healthy. Um, yeah. You know, you could always take an extreme diet. You could eat a purely potato chip diet. And yeah, you could be a that's not going to be good for you. So I, yeah. I would rather people, if they're going to do a vegetarian or vegan diet, do it in consultation with a physician or a dietitian, someone that really can make sure you're getting all of the necessary foods and micronutrients um, that your body needs. Well, great. No, I appreciate that. We have a couple more questions that came in on that line. What about um, lactose-free? Uh, people that you know are increasingly going um, uh, lactose-free or and also gluten-free. You know, we've been hearing a lot about these uh, diets or recommendations that either lactose-free or gluten-free have impact on on vision health. Sure, um, lactose-free, I can almost be certain wouldn't have an impact one way or another. Um, you know, the composition of a lactose-free dairy product is virtually identical to one that has the lactose. I I wouldn't have any qualms about that. Um, The gluten-free can be a little more difficult because if you're really strictly adhering to a gluten-free diet, um, a lot of times there are foods that you're going to have to avoid um, that we know are beneficial. And a lot of those are whole grain foods that, you know, do actually contain gluten. So I think there's a potential for people on gluten-free diets to have um, food types that are either like highly processed because you're buying them in a market. um, And and the food industry has had to increase the palpability of those foods. So they may be stripped of some of, you know, those beneficial fibers and things that are present in the whole grains. Um, I think you could easily make a gluten-free diet that's just as healthy as a non-gluten-free diet, but um, I would want to be careful about how you went about having a gluten-free diet, and making sure you're not missing. We think that fiber is kind of magical um, when it comes to diet, um, and you really have to make sure you're getting the same amount of fiber on a gluten-free diet as a non-gluten-free diet. That's a great point, and and um, you know, and we were talking about lactose a minute ago. Uh, we have a call wondering about uh, cheese, particularly types of cheese that have a higher amount of fat. Um, does that have an impact on vision health? You know, you know cheese is interesting. Um, the studies I've seen that have tried to look, um, maybe not specifically at a higher fat cheese, but they've kind of lumped this category of um, high fat dairy products, um, have actually found that it could actually be beneficial. The people that had the lowest amounts of high fat dairy seem to do worse in those particular studies. Um, so I, I think it all depends on what you're eating along with those cheeses. I, I think it's very easy to incorporate high-fat cheeses into a really healthy dietary pattern. Um, what you want to do is you want to make sure that you're not melting it on a hamburger. Like, you have to think about, you know, it's, it gets into this idea of a dietary pattern. It's what else are you eating along with that food, and what are you eating instead of that food? Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And kind of the, kind of the, the last question for a little bit on specific foods. You know, we hear people talk about um, uh, good chocolate and bad chocolate. And I think it's a great point you mentioned about the low glycemic, um, uh, you know, uh, foods that are sweet, but still healthy. Is there any 
uh, probably asking this on behalf of millions of Americans, is there any chocolate that's that is good to have? I, I think all chocolate is good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've never met but, a bad one. Yeah, <laughs> chocolate is good. It makes you happy. That's good. Um, yeah. No, but but what we do know is that you know a darker chocolates do tend to have more um, phytochemicals. They have like these complex plant-derived compounds like flavanols um, that may be helpful. They, they may not be in the amounts that we actually eat them. Um, it's hard to really see the downside of, you know, eating a semi-dark yeah. chocolate. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's easy to go on the other side, though. And if you're having chocolate with too much added sugar and too much yeah. unsaturated fat, you could definitely overdo it. So with chocolate, you have to do it in moderation. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And I know you, know, you, you mentioned briefly at the outset about um, your research that gets into to the gut microbiome. And, and I think this is interesting because I feel like, my, to me, microbiome is one of those words that Everybody hears, you hear it a lot in the media and conversations over the last couple of years, but I'm not quite sure that a lot of us truly, under, <clears throat> truly understand gut microbiome or hear people talk about ads on TV for pro, probiotics. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the gut microbiome and, and how that impacts AMD. Sure. Um, so the gut microbiome is kind of what we refer to as like this whole ecosystem that's living symbiotically with us. Um, in our, in our body, there's microbiomes in pretty much all parts of the body, um, but we've spent a lot of time looking specifically at the one associated with the colon. Um, a lot of times when we talk about the gut microbiome, um, it might include um, the upper intestine, the lower intestine. We usually think about the, the colonic um, intestine um, when we think about the microbiome. And these are all of the different kinds of bacteria. Um, there's also non-bacteria like fungi and viruses, and the bacteria have their own viruses. It's a huge kind of ecosystem um, that lives inside us and, for the most part, very peacefully and very beneficially for us. Um, so a healthy gut microbiome has been associated with lower rates of chronic disease and pretty much across studies. It, it's sometimes a little hard to exactly define what's a healthy versus an unhealthy microbiome. But we know that, um, that there are things that can go wrong with our gut microbiomes, um, especially when they become imbalanced because of, for example, an antibiotic that may be killing off a lot of the beneficial bacteria and allowing undesirable ones to expand. And those are often associated with inflammatory conditions. Um, and inflammation is, you know, we think of one of the contributors to um, increased risk for macular degeneration. So there's a condition called dysbiosis. Um, some of your listeners might be familiar with this term called a leaky gut, um, where when the bacteria are out of balance, um, our gut's not working well enough to keep you know, the bacteria on the inside. Some of their products translocate, um, go from the inside to the outside, and those can activate an inflammatory and an immune reaction that can have effects um, throughout the body. So as, as far as macular degeneration connections, I have to say that right now, um, the connections are ones that we found in experimental systems. So I would say knowing for sure that there's a connection between gut microbiome and AMD um, is in its early stages. Mm -hmm. But we, we know from animal um, model experiments that 
um, that there's potentially beneficial functions of the gut microbiome that directly seem to keep the eye healthy. Um, and we also know that there's functions of the gut microbiome that can increase inflammation that could um, make other kinds of models of AMD worse. That's interesting. And as you talk about you know, some of the lessons that, that you and your, your colleagues in this field have learned, um, it's kind of a basic question, like, how do you learn many of these things? Do you use clinical trials? We, we get callers who you know, want to know a little bit more about what a clinical trial is and how it works. I was wondering, um, just some of the knowledge that we're talking about today, does that come from clinical trials on, on, this, on uh, food and diet? Most of what we know about diet is, um, is coming from, they're called um, observational studies. They tend to be large collections of individuals, um, a cohort study where we may be looking at, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, um, and we've collected data about them at the beginning of the study and then follow them through a study. So the, the kind of classic version of these is called a prospective study, where ideally you want to start with healthy people, um, learn everything that we know about them at the beginning, and then see which ones eventually develop a disease like age-related macular degeneration. Um, those, some of those studies can take a really long time, and there's, there's some populations and cohorts that we've been you know, following up for decades. The, a famous one is the Framingham Heart Study um, that's been going on for, you know, multiple generations of people. Then there's also um, something like a more clinical trial like the ARIDS trials where you enroll people to do to either take a specific treatment. It could be like a drug. It could be um, a combination of vitamins and minerals in the case of ARIDS and compare them against people that took a placebo that um, you know, kind of took a, a non-version of that active medication and then follow them carefully, usually in a clinical setting, to see if they develop disease or if the disease progresses. So both of those studies have taught us about the diet. Um, I think we've learned more from like the really big population studies. Of course, the challenge in all of that is, you know, is in epidemiology, you always talk about association. Um, it's very hard to prove causation. That's the benefit of these randomized clinical trials, um, which are harder to carry out. They're so expensive, and uh, they often still take years to come up with answers. Yeah. No, we've all been hearing a lot about clinical trials in the, in the pursuit for a COVID-19 vaccine. And I was wondering, sure. you know, the, the, the clinical trials just across the board, whether it's for, you know, vi um, vision health or, or, or elsewhere, how does one um, uh, join? How does somebody wants to help out the scientific progress? How, how, do, how does somebody get involved with the clinical trial? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of good ways. Um, I'm sure the Bright Focus Foundation is happy to connect people with um, atrial macular degeneration trials. That would be one place. I know a, a lot of the patients that we think about recruiting for our kinds of clinical trials, um, we usually do through the clinics. Um, so often it's the patients that are either going in for routine care or specifically to follow up on a disease. Um, we may you know, give that patient some information about a clinical trial that we're interested in enrolling for. Um, those are two common routes. There's also a really tremendous website that the U.S. government keeps um, running called clinicaltrials.gov. And every registered clinical trial is in there, and they'll often indicate if they're enrolling or not. So you can actually go on the website and put in 
your subject terms of interest and see, is there a study that I'm interested in participating in and are they enrolling? And there's probably contact information there as well. That's great. And, and at Bright Focus, we put together a, uh, a, a, a short brochure a couple of years ago called Clinical Trials, Your Questions Answered, and it has a lot of um, uh, you know, questions to ask your doctor and other things, and we'd be glad to send that out to any free of charge to anyone on this call. What you do is just simply at the end of the call, um, leave. We have a voicemail box at the conclusion of the chat, and leave your U.S. mail address, and we'll be be sure to get that out to you. Because, uh, yeah, I really think with because of COVID, there is a lot of heightened interest about how, um, uh, you know, how science is made, how we how we um, how quickly and how well can can we learn these. These knowledge and you know you mentioned the um, the ARIDS too and and um, we had a lot of questions uh, today and on previous chats about uh, the ARIDS too and and other nutritional supplements and, and you know vitamin supplements. I was wondering if you could you know tell our listeners a little bit about ARIDS and and sort of just the the field of nutritional supplements as well because again I think like microbiome it's something people hear a lot about but maybe don't don't quite understand. Sure, and I haven't said anything about probiotics yet either, so I'll, okay, let yeah, me touch on you. that too. Sure, uh, but thanks. I'll start with the ARIDS trial. Um, the ARIDS trial was kind of, it was initiated by the National Eye Institute a couple of decades ago um, based on exactly the kinds of studies I've mentioned to you, a lot of epidemiology linking you know, deficiencies in certain vitamins to increased risk for macular degeneration. And they said, let's take the best of our scientific understanding and come together with a formulation of some vitamins and antioxidants and carotenoids, things that have all been associated with protection against macular degeneration. And let's actually give them to a subset of patients compared to a placebo and see if that reduces um, progression of macular degeneration. And so the original trial, I think it had vitamin C, vitamin E, um, those were kind of like the major vitamin um, antioxidants as well as zinc, copper. Um, originally, it was beta carotene, um, and then they swapped out the beta carotene for two other carotenoids called lutein and zeaxanthin. And they found over and over again that individuals that have this combination, and I should mention, these are doses that are much higher than what you would normally be able to get in your diet or even in a regular um, multivitamin supplement. But when you give this combination to people, um, there was like about a 25% or maybe even greater reduction in risk for AMD progression. It, it's been like the absolute gold wow. standard treatment, um, the best thing that we've come up with. And I'm, I'm kind of proud to say that this originated from nutritional epidemiology. Um, and so that's a treatment. The, the interesting thing about ARIDS is we're not entirely sure how it works. Um, the initial idea was that I think antioxidants was probably the early idea. You just give the body enough of these and you prevent, you know, that oxygen-mediated damage. But I'm not sure if, if the science has been consistent on that front. And so it could be that the arid supplements are working in multiple parts of the body. They could even be working um, within the gut microbiome. So that's made people think about, are there more targeted treatments that could potentially work as well as ARIDS, if not better. Um, and the idea that the gut microbiome could be connected to macular degeneration, I think has made people wonder, like, well, what about a probiotic that should improve my gut microbiome? Yeah. Um, and I hate to say the short answer on that is we actually don't know um, what, 
the right kinds of probiotics are to take to improve the gut microbiome. So the way we usually try to improve our gut microbiome is by feeding the bacteria um, the foods that they need, things like fibers, um, instead of trying to actually add in. What, mm-hmm. you, you don't want to do like some mad science experiment on your body where you give them too much of one kind of bacteria, and all of a sudden you start um, outcompeting another kind of bacteria that might end up being even more important that we don't even know about yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so probiotics are tricky. It's not that there's no promise. And I think as someone that does the experimental side, I'm really excited in using probiotics to test ideas about how different bacteria may be working together um, in the body and to affect the eye. But I don't know if people should really be experimenting on themselves to that degree. Yeah. We know it's safe to eat like a Mediterranean diet. That's definitely safe. We don't actually know how safe a lot of probiotics are. Yeah, and we've got a few questions. You know, people ask about supplements. Like, is it, it you know, is it better to have a supplement or the actual food it, it, itself? Like, you know, that, that might have that might have some of those. Like, just you know, yeah. <laughs> And the, the, the nutrition scientist in me is going to say it's always better to have the food than the supplements because yeah. um, it might be something that's coming along that you didn't think was the main part of it. Like think about like a food like an orange and you think, okay, I want to eat oranges to get more vitamin C or I could take this vitamin C supplement. But what if the really healthy part of the orange is what gives it the orange color or the fiber that's you know in the peel or the segments between the oranges. So we know that the whole food always has the benefit. Um, we don't know if you can kind of isolate that. Um, fruit juice doesn't work the same way that eating the whole fruit does. Um, so I, I always go for the whole food yeah. for a supplement. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a great point. We have an interesting question from someone that's wondering how to get started. Obviously, these type of changes to diet, um, you know, can can be pretty can be pretty challenging, can be pretty overwhelming. Is there sort of a a, a good attainable starting point uh, to move toward a, a a diet that's better for vision health? Yeah, that that's a great question. I think a lot of people struggle with their diets. You know, you kind of you've established your dietary pattern, what foods you like to eat, and then you're like, oh, but maybe I want to eat a Mediterranean diet. But all of a sudden, you're trying to eat all of these new foods, and maybe you're not as familiar with them, you don't like them as much, um, you're probably not going to stick with it. I think the the best approach is to start to make small substitutions um, with things that you don't mind sacrificing. So for example, if you're used to eating, um, you know, your sandwich with, you know, sliced white bread, you could think about changing that white bread to a whole grain bread. And you don't even have to go full whole grain. Um, There's you know, versions of white breads that look and taste pretty similar, but maintain all of the fiber and protein that a whole grain bread would have. So you can start by making easy substitutions. Switch over the ham for turkey. You can get a smoked turkey or you can get a flavored turkey that, you know, might give you that same feel. So you don't feel like you're actually changing your dietary pattern, even though you're making small changes. Um, You know, again, if you're used to eating fruit juice, as part of your diet, say for breakfast, have the fruit instead. Um, you already like it probably. Most people enjoy fruits. Um, vegetables can be a little trickier. I would say eat the foods that you like. Um, 
I, if you're trying to force yourself to eat something you don't like just because you know it's good for you, you're probably not going to stick with it. Yeah, that doesn't seem um, And you know, and I, I also don't. People shouldn't be afraid to get help. Um, yeah, this is what dietitians do. They've been training, working in hospitals with like thousands of patients to do these exact things. Um, I, I think it's always a great idea to get help from someone that really knows how to do it and can work with you personally to mm-hmm. tailor something that'll work. Um, yeah. Books can be great too, um, but maybe don't you know plan your new dietary change from you know a Facebook thread. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great, great advice on a lot of levels there. Um, yeah, and I think really, let's say we've had a few, we've had a few listeners ask today about you know, hearing that that there's some fruit that has sugar in it, and you know, you we're instinctively told to think that sugar is bad and fruit is good. So can you sort of help us clarify the what to, what to make out of sh- sugar and fruit? Yeah, right. It seems like a paradox. We're like mm-hmm. eat eat fruits; they're good for you. Don't eat sugars they're not good and you look at what that fruit has and it's got all of this you know simple sugar that's you know it's fructose say and you're like i know that fructose is bad for me um the thing is in the context of the whole fruit that the math doesn't add up that way all of the benefits of everything else contained in that fruit especially the fiber especially um all of these other macro and micronutrients that are part of it balance out any potential negative effect of that amount of sugar. Um, the other thing is even fruit that tastes really sweet to us. Like you think about um, grapes, for example. Yeah. Grapes are high in sugar. They have a high glycemic index. In principle, you're like, I should not eat grapes. Um, but the amount of grapes people actually eat at a time, the, the sugar you're getting in there is not really all that much compared to drinking um, you know, a can of soda or even a lot of foods that don't taste sweet, um, a lot of processed foods just have a lot of added sugar. Mm. I don't think, if you like a fruit or a vegetable, I don't think you should be scared if it's sweet. I love butternut squash and sweet potato, and, and they're sweet, and they're just tremendously great. Yeah, no, that's, no, that's good advice, because you really, you're really you exactly right. It is, a, it is a paradox, and I think you've helped, you've helped clarify that for us. Yeah, but, it's hard for people that are trying to do like a strict ketogenic diet where they're told you have to have zero carbohydrates and they're suddenly cutting out a lot of like very healthy foods that have small amounts of carbohydrates and you know unless that's what your doctor wants you to do i don't i don't know if that's worth the you know what you lose by not eating those foods yeah that's a great point so dr um dr ron just kind of concluding uh Big picture. I know you've been been working in this in this field for a little while. I was wondering, how do you think we're doing in terms of si- scientific progress, public awareness, behavior change? I mean, how do you feel that uh, that that we're doing in terms of um, of uh, better understanding and treating and hopefully curing AMD? Yeah, I I, I think it's an exciting time. Um, certainly, doing research. Um, this is a really exciting time for me. I think. Um, one of the things that we've done, we've spent a lot of time trying to understand, like, what's the actual mechanism that's causing AMD? Um, and that's really helped, I'd say, fuel, like, the drug discovery side of things. Um, and we're not quite there. We're definitely there with wet macular degeneration. We've made, like, huge steps. I think, like, for dry macular degeneration, we're so close. Um, I've seen 
you know, early results from a number of studies that look so promising. And it's just, you know, that's one of those like time and money things. Um, something's going to come out from there. Um, but from my perspective, maybe thinking like a little more on a public health level, um, I'm, I'm excited about what we've like understood about the diet and macular degeneration, because that's something that people can start to change in their lives. Um, they don't have to wait to have the disease. They don't have to um, do this under instruction of a clinician or as part of a clinical trial. Like we have the opportunities to make lifestyle changes. And, and I should mention, I've, you know, my, my research and what I've been talking about is really focused on diet. Um, but there's other lifestyle changes that can really all work together with the diet. Um, so, for example, not smoking, that's kind of, hopefully for this audience, they've heard that message a lot. Um, but also exercise um, could be something that independently lowers your risk. Um, and I wanted to mention one study that I really like that looked at this combination of what happens with better eating. Um, they used the American Healthy Eating Index and then more exercise and not smoking. And each one of those on its own had a benefit, but when you combine them together, they found people that adhered to like a healthy eating index, got a lot of exercise, didn't smoke, had 71% lower odds of early macular degeneration. Wow. So that, that's a change people can make, you know, right now um, without, we, we know the research on it, the results are really clear. And, and I think prevention sounds a lot better to me than having to go to your doctor and then find out um, what you're going to need to do. So that, that's a place I don't think drugs are going to be able to give us that same kind of effect. You don't want to be drugging healthy populations to prevent a disease, but changing our lifestyle, something that's in our control that we, you know, can say like this is a scientifically proven understanding and you can do this now and it's safe and it's not just going to help you lower your risk for macular degeneration, but it's going to lower your risk for cardiovascular disease. It's going to lower your risk for diabetes. It's going to lower your risk for heart disease, et cetera. Um, that, that's exciting to me. Um, the fact that we actually know that, <laughs> you know, it sounds great in theory, but it's another thing to have the data out there. I'm really excited about the Mediterranean diet too. Um, in the last few years, there have been studies from all over the world. Um, sometimes, especially in, in America, we tend to look at ourselves a little bit too much. Um, but the Mediterranean diet studies have now happened in Australia, in different parts of Europe and North America. Um, they're all coming to these same conclusions. And they're not people necessarily eating the identical Mediterranean diets. They're eating you know, a dietary pattern that's consistent with their population. Um, so for example, people closer to coastal areas are having more fish. Um, people further from the water might be having more fruits and vegetables. Um, and all of those studies have really converged on this protective effect of the Mediterranean diet. Um, some of those studies have also shown that fish consumption can be a huge thing, even on its own. Increasing the amount of fish we eat um, seems to be kind of like that one food group that um, doesn't even need everything else to work together. So taking fish plus everything else is a great way to think about, um, you know, preventing macular degeneration or progression if you have macular degeneration. Yeah. Well, great. This has been just a wonderful um, conversation we've had today, and I'm really confident that our listeners came away with a lot of useful advice, both, you know, in, in short-term 
uh, actions as, as well as understanding how two things that they may not have connected the diet the diet and their vision health um, are, are very interrelated and they're such a, at the core of, of healthy aging. So, uh, Dr. Rowan, on behalf of Bright Focus, I just want to thank you for, for being so generous with your time today. And this, this is, um, I think I can speak for all of us, this has been, been really helpful and, and appreciate uh, uh, all you're doing to, to try to uh, proactively uh, save people's sight. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I love doing this. Um, you know, public outreach is, is just so important. Um, you know, doing the research into a void isn't beneficial to anyone. So I appreciate the opportunity to reach out to the people that support your group. Um, it's just tremendous. And I can't wait in a couple of years to tell you about my research results, which will hopefully yeah. be just as exciting. Well, then, well, this is great. So, so again, uh, Dr. Ron, on behalf of uh, everyone on the call today and, and Bright Focus Foundation, thank you so much for uh, for all that you do and being with us today. And uh, this concludes uh, today's Bright Focus chat. Thank you. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.